0: Let's take a moment and pray together, please. Lord, thank you this morning. What a miraculous day. Thank you, Lord, that you are not a faraway God, but you're a God who comes near when we call upon your name. And so we pray, Father, that you send your Holy Spirit to open our minds and open our hearts. Lord, fill my words. And Lord, above all, would you open the scriptures to us, that encountering them, we might encounter you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. On December 5th, 1986, a man named Walter Wyatt attempted to fly his plane from Nassau, Bahamas to Miami, Florida. Normally, the flight took him a little over an hour, but not on this day. Walter was attempting the flight late In the afternoon, and after thieves had stolen the navigational equipment from his plane, he figured, I've done this enough times, I can do this today. And so, with only a compass and a handheld radio, he set out. The skies rapidly blackened with an approaching thunderstorm. His compass started to gyrate. Walter feared that he was getting turned around, and because of all the clouds, he decided to go down low so that he might get sight of something that he recognized. But as he dropped below the cloud cover, he saw nothing that looked familiar to him. So he put out a distress call, which began a Coast Guard mobilization. Before help could deeply get established, his engine went out, and he crash-landed his plane in the water. It quickly sank, and all he had on was his orange life vest, nothing else. He floated through the long night in the dark, terrified, sure that he was going to die. When the morning dawned, he heard a search plane, and miraculously, truly miraculously, the pilot caught sight of Walter's orange life vest and his arms flailing in the air and the pilot radioed to a Coast Guard cutter which was about 12 minutes away. The pilot said to the cutter's captain, you have to hurry. That man is being targeted by multiple sharks. Walter managed to kick these sharks away until the cutter arrived He was exhausted. He was so tired that when they let the ladder down he couldn't pull himself up. They had to yank him up, hoist him on board where he collapsed in a heap exhausted on the deck. Walter Wyatt was saved. He was saved. And nothing less than outside intervention. Could have rescued him from death. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, in effect, that's us. We are all Walter Wyatts. And apart from God's outside intervention, we're dead. If you want to look at your bulletin insert, we're going to look through Ephesians 2 for a few moments. You can use your handheld device, whatever. It may even be up on the screens. We're going to walk through a few of these scriptures this morning. We start at verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, "...and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air." the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul describes us as sons and daughters of disobedience. That's the family we belong to. It's as though you're looking through a directory and you see, oh, the Joneses and the Smiths and the Myers and the disobediences. (laughs) You're Miss Disobedience. You're Mr. Disobedience. That is the family into which we are all collectively born. In fact, disobedience is our first language. Selfishness is our native tongue. Rebellion is the song we sing. We take our cues from a world which knows nothing about the holy and almighty and living God. A world which is estranged from God through willful self-reliance. In verse 3, Paul says, we are by nature objects, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. No one is immune to the disease of sin. We're all born with a terminal case. And it manifests in each of us according to our own particular bentness. It might look like pride or greed or deceit or envy or fear or gluttony or lust or anger, or laziness. As such, we are all objects of wrath. Now, wrath is not a word we deal with well in our culture of everything's okay. The wrath of God is not the tantrum of a petty tyrant. The wrath of God is not the rage of an abusive parent. The wrath of God is not an out-of-control and drunken father. That is human wrath. No, the wrath of God is God's settled and fair anger toward us because of rebellion and sin. Listen to how it's put in Romans 1.18. You don't have that, but just listen. These words for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, ungodliness and unrighteousness. In fact, say those words ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, let's talk about what those are for a moment. Ungodliness, essentially, is sin against God. It's the vertical dimension of sin. It's a disregard for what Jesus said is the first commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's breaking the foundational commandment upon which all other commandments are built. think about your life. I mean, think about where you really live in the ways in which you have lived from the time of your birth until now. Is there anyone among us who can say, I have kept perfectly the first commandment, loving God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, the attitudes I have. Can you say that? Because I think I know the answer. The answer is no, of course you cannot say that. We have broken God's first command. We seek our own glory, not God's. Now remember, ungodliness is not just the things we've done wrong, it's also the things that we didn't do that we ought to have done. How about apathy toward God? How about, nah, sleep in today. How about, it's too hard to serve. How about, nah, I don't like the Bible. I don't like those Christians. Whatever. Apathy toward God. Denial of God. Outright rejection of God. And i got to tell you, if you're sitting here today and you're an agnostic, well, you're included in that too. Agnostic is just you're sitting on the fence. Either you're ignorant and don't have knowledge or you're unwilling to make up your mind. That's all what the Bible calls ungodliness. What about unrighteousness? Well, it's what Jesus talked about as that second commandment. It's the horizontal dimension. Look around at the people around you. It's the sin we commit against other people. And we see it in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, with our parents, with our children, with our siblings, with our friends, with our enemies... We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. And so we also break this second command. This includes things like gossip and lying and manipulating and control, judging others, hating mercilessly. Man, the trolls out there, that's in this one. Ungodliness and unrighteousness, disobeying God's commands, that's what sin is. It is the great downfall of humanity. Sin is our true addiction. It is truly what we are addicted to. And it is the source of our fatal illness. We are guilty. You are guilty. I am guilty. The justice of God, God who is just and holy and perfect and righteous and glorious in all ways... The justice of God requires penalty for the breaking of command. If the justice of God did not demand that, God would not be just. God would be unrighteous. The scripture says, the penalty of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. Now that doesn't just mean you expire It includes that, physical death, but there's something far worse than physical death. The scripture says that sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God in this life, but sin separates us from God throughout all of eternity. And that doesn't mean you cease to exist. You will go on after you expire physically. The question is, Will it be in God's will, or will it be, as C.S. Lewis said, in your own will for all of eternity? And despite what the pundits and the comics and the mockers and the blasphemers have said, that's not going to be a party down there with Satan. Jesus described it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now hear this. Think about the most snot-awful, horrible, painful, painful, crying you've ever seen or experienced combined with the gnashing of teeth imagine all of your teeth have been broken the nerves are exposed and they're constantly jamming into each other for an eternity a strong language but he's trying to get a point across because he loves us enough to tell us the truth sin is an ocean that has swallowed us like walter wyatt and sentenced us to a long and exhausting death in this life and in the next. Bill Graham once said this To you sin may be a small thing. To God it is a great and awful thing. It is the second largest thing in the world. Only the love of God is greater. The love of God is greater. The love that God has for you is greater than your sin. The love of God is greater. That is the good news on this morning. It is more powerful than your disobedience. But God's love is not sentimentality. And this is where people get very confused. The God of the Bible, the true and living God, the creator of the universe, is not the kind of God we modern people would have ever come up with. We wouldn't have invented the real God. God is not an old grandfather sitting on a throne, calling to his kids and grandkids and giving them butterscotch candies and patting them on the head and saying, They're there, it doesn't matter. Whatever. Do your thing. You do you. the real and living God will tell you things you don't want to hear. God's goal is not your personal comfort. God's not here to fulfill your ambitions. You need a God who is greater than your personal wants. You need a God who is bigger than the shame that you bear in your soul. You need a God that's bigger than the guilt that you carry who can transform the worthlessness that has been rammed down upon you by this world. You need a God who will free you from the condemnation you are under apart from Him. The Bible tells us that God's love is a holy love. The theologian John Stott writes, God's love yearns for the sinner, while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. Now hear that. God yearns over you, but God will not condone your sin. Stott goes on, at the cross, in holy love, God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. He bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness we do not deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. If you go back to our text in Ephesians, verse 4 says, "...but God..." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. What is His great love like? How has God loved us? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered into this world. He lived our life. He kept the law. He was mocked. And for what? Saying love God and love others for healing people, for delivering, for raising up the broken? Yes, the world mocks that. And you know what? Religion mocks that too. A crown of thorns was mashed upon his head. He was whipped and beaten mercilessly. He was spit upon and screamed at. And he was pounded to a cross, nails through his hands and his feet, hanging between two criminals. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. He took your place. He bore your sin. He paid the penalty that you are due. He is the Savior. See, holy love is costly. It involves substitutionary sacrifice. That's a fancy theological word for it means he took our place. Some of you will remember the Harry Potter books. I'm sure anybody under a certain age has read them, right? Or at least seen the movies In the first book, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry but can't touch him. Then later when the Voldemort possessed villain Quirrell tries to get Harry, he can't touch him. And in fact, he's hurt as he tries to. He's agonizing in pain. And Harry later asks his mentor, Professor Dumbledore, why couldn't he touch me? And this is what Dumbledore says, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's love for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. It's a powerful statement. It's the cross. It's what costly love is. And our hearts know it's right. We get it. That's what sacrificial love is. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. We know from experience, from the mundane to the dramatic, that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. And we know that anybody who has ever done anything that made a difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse, sacrificed in some way, stepped in and accepted some hardship, so that we would not get hit with it ourselves. That's the cross. So that you would not get hit with it yourself. That's God's holy love for you. He stepped in. He took the blow for you. Oh, hallelujah. That's costly love. Again, Keller says, On the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. The sin, the guilt, the shame, the brokenness of this world fell upon Him. He loved us so much... He took divine justice on himself so that we could be passed over forever. Go back to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The solution to sin is not more government or more education, it's not more rules, not behavioralism, it's not moralism, and it's not more rituals. We need God's holy love. We need Jesus, His self-sacrificing love. We need outside intervention to rescue us and pull us out from that which we cannot rescue ourselves. Like Walter Wyatt, we're in an ocean, and we're sunk if we are not rescued. See, it's not that we just need to clean ourselves up a bit. Take on a few spiritual practices. Shape up, you know, on Sundays at least. <laughs> we need rescue. We need salvation. Yes, we do. That's grace. God rescuing us, stepping in, doing for you what you can't do for yourself. God initiated, God given, God empowered. That's grace. What is our part? Well, we need to hear the truth. I'll just count on that as holy sound effects. (laughs) See, the problem isn't the person sitting next to you. Apart from Christ, I'm dead. I'm lost. I need to be rescued. Our part is to turn away, hear this. Our part is to do the thing that is hardest for us to do. It's, it's what is hard in every culture across all of time. We have to lay down our self will. That's repentance. It might include changing some behaviors, but it's far more than that, it, it's a surrender of your will. And that can be terrifying if you come from a background where you've been abused, you've been shamed, you've been given a false gospel. Like there are false gospels out there. Some of you grew up in churches where you never heard either bad news or good news. The gospel is both bad news and good news. But if you've only been raised under shame, under religious intolerance, or you've been beaten by someone who said they were a Christian but were not, then this can be terrifying. But God is not like that person. God is the kind of God who sees you in your dirt and your shame, and He runs down the road for love of you. God is a God who will seek you even when you're running at a full pace the other direction, crying out, come home, come home. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. We have to place our faith in Him. Grace is a gift, but it will not be forced upon you. Your mama might be in grace, but are you? Your husband might be in grace, but are you? Your brother or sister or a friend, somebody might have brought you here because they've discovered the wonders of grace and they love you enough to bring you to the place where you can be made free to the very love of God. That's how much someone loves you this morning. But we must receive this gift. If you look at verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You don't have to struggle for it. You don't have to work for it. You do have to receive God's gift of grace. Anybody been touched by grace here? Yeah, it, It's a warm thing welling up in within you today, isn't it? Yeah. That's the warmth of His presence and the wonder of His love. It wells up from within. It's what causes you to love Him in return, not to slave away in fear. It changes, and I have to, to, and I get to, to, and I want to. I want to worship you. I want to serve you. I love you because you loved me first. Thanks be to God. It's not up to me. You're so good, Lord. And here's the thing when get, grace gets a hold of you, it starts to change everything. It doesn't happen all at once. Sometimes there are big strides, but usually it's a lifelong journey, right? Things are being reoriented and reshaped. Your relationship to sin and disobedience will change because see, you're not in the family Of disobedience anymore you're brought into the family of obedience into the family of holiness you're made a daughter you're made a son the Spirit of God comes to live in you in a mysterious but very real way and your relationship to sin starts to change it's not as much fun anymore and if it is something's wrong or you plugged your ears and you covered your eyes, or you were trying to drown out some hurt or disappointment, maybe with God, maybe with somebody else. I, I want to speak right now for a moment to the Christian who's back. You wandered away, but you're back, you're here today. You've been in sin, you know it. You kind of hated being here. You're feeling uncomfortable here, but you're also your heart's also saying, could it be? Here, here's what sin's like when a Christian goes back to it and does it habitually. You ever had a favorite pair of pants? And man, you look good in those pants. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all know. Ladies, it's the pair of pants you can even wear when your body's doing like uncomfortable things. Your favorite pair of pants. Happy pants. Those are your sin pants, by the way. And when you become a Christian, you go, you know, I'm saved by grace. I'm forgiven. I can't mess this up. Maybe I'll go try those sin pants on again. And you put them on. It's like, dang, they don't quite fit the same. I'm going to put them on anyway. And you look in the mirror and you go, dang, that thing looks big. And you sit down and it's like, i got to unbutton. This is not working. And you look down, it's like they're too high up. And you realize like there's a big split down the back end. Part of you's hanging out. Those are your sin pants. Get out of them, they don't fit anymore. Grace welcomes you back. Put on Christ, He fits perfectly. And He doesn't make you get all cleaned up and fixed before you come home. He says, I'll do it for you. You just have to make the move in response to my grace. You have to hear and know and receive what I'm trying to give you. And you'll be welcome with open arms. And you know what happens? It starts to affect our families. It starts to affect our friendships. It affects the way you do business, the way you view your future, the way you view your money. Like the things that have power over all of your neighbors start to have less, less power over you you start to have peace in your family and your friendships and isn't that where we need the peace especially in our families between spouses between siblings with our friends if you're a single person we need peace i think about the husband and the wife who became estranged from one another. They just couldn't work things out. They decided to separate. Pretty common story. Some of you know this story, the pain that goes with that. They moved away. They lived in different parts of the country. Now the husband happened to be on business back in the same town, and he went out to the cemetery to see the grave of their only son, who died. He's standing by the grave, and he hears sounds, steps coming from behind him, and he turns and he looks, and it's his estranged wife. And both of them, upon recognizing one another, immediately wanted to flee, like to get out of there. But they had a common interest in that grave. They had a common interest in the grave. And so instead of turning away, they clasped hands over the grave of their son and they were reconciled. They were reconciled by death. We have the power to be reconciled to God and to other people. And it comes through the death of a son but it's through the death of the Son of God. Through the power of the cross, husbands and wives can forgive. Siblings can let go of long-standing grievances. Friends can repent and be forgiven. But make no mistake, we do not stand over a grave that's got a body in it. We do not stand at a tomb that's full of dead men's bones. The angel said to the women on that first Easter morning, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is not in the tomb. He has risen. Hallelujah! Just like He said He would. Now, think about it. When a criminal does their time and they fully satisfy the sentence, the law has no more claim over them and they walk free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for sins, that infinite sentence. And it must have been satisfied fully because on Easter Day, this day, he walked out free. He is alive. The resurrection was God's way of stamping forever. Paid in full. Sentence commuted. You are free. Jesus did not come for people who have it all together. So if that's you, I'm sorry. There's nothing here for you today. (laughs) He came for people who know they need help. He came for people who are despised, who are outsiders and outcasts. He came for people who are not good enough, not righteous enough, not holy enough, the people that religion rejects. And so I say to you, come to Christ this morning, respond to his costly love, receive his grace. Be washed anew and be saved. Be cleansed and take off those old pants. They're no good to you anymore. His arms of welcome. His arms of welcome are here for you. Just for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord in the places where there's a true response going on to you in our hearts, even the smallest of yeses, would you enter in powerfully? Would you fill and change and cleanse and deliver and heal and make new? And would you cause us now to rejoice, Lord? Would you cause us to have the joy that we are your children and we are free because we are loved? Thank you, Lord, for grace. Forgive us our sins. We pray in your name. Amen.